Hello and welcome to the RBC Ross Trevor Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community, to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoyed this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. The dining room table. It's a piece of furniture that extends back thousands of years. Apparently, the first dining tables, made of wood anyway, were invented and used by the Egyptians in about 2500 BCE. And yet, despite advancements in design, culture, technology, religion, here we are thousands of years later, halfway across the world, with a wooden dining table. And so while this is a piece of furniture that has lasted thousands of years, apparently the practice of eating at a dining table does not have the same story of survival. According to a 2019 article by uh, The Atlantic, there are a thousand Americans surveyed and they found that whereas 72% of respondents had grown up eating at a dining table, only 48% continued to do so. That's nearly three-quarters to less than half. Instead, what they found was that 30% of respondents, their primary eating location was the couch, and 17% was the bedroom. They found that 60 years ago, the average meal time was about an hour and a half, and now is closer to 12 minutes. A separate study found that one in five meals consumed in America is consumed in the car. I suspect the results of that survey might be similar if we ran that here. But I think these results are startling for a number of reasons. They seem to reflect a culture of hurry, and we've just done a whole series about resisting hurry. They seem to reflect a certain disconnectedness in our society, even between those within our own home. But perhaps most significantly, these statistics seem to reflect that we have abandoned the spiritual practice of hospitality. See, throughout Jesus' life, we see that Jesus dines with everybody from the religious leaders to the most marginalised and despised members of society. We see that hospitality is a considered and consistent practice in Jesus' life. And this morning, as we look at that practice, I want us to consider what our church might look like, what our community, what our family, what our schools and our workplaces might look like if we rediscover the spiritual practice of hospitality. I wonder whether we, as a church, see our homes and our dining tables as places of mission or as places of retreat. Because I know that I, for one, am all too inclined to take Jesus' mandate to make disciples of all nations and to see the whole world as my mission field, but to see my home as my safe space to which I retreat. But as we press into the word this morning, we'll see that that was not Jesus' practice. And so before we jump into the text, will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. 
I thank you that it is instructive and that it is transformative. Father, I pray that as we look to your word this morning, that you would reveal your heart for us. And I pray that I would be a diligent steward of your word this morning, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be reading today from Luke 14. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open up there. Otherwise, the text will be up on the screen. But we start this morning, as we have throughout a lot of this series, with Jesus butting heads with the Pharisees over some issue of teaching or the law. Let's read. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Now I want to pause here to establish some context. So we see that Jesus is dining at the house of a prominent Pharisee. And we might be a little bit confused by that, given Jesus' history of great clashes with the Pharisees, and given the reputation that we learned from Pastor Mike, that Jesus was somebody who dined with sinners and outcasts. But we recall that Jesus ate with sinners to call them to repentance. And that includes the Pharisees. Because even though they would not have admitted it, they too were sick with sin. And another question that we might ask, given that Jesus was eating with the prominent Pharisees, is why this sick man was there, given the low social standing that he would likely have had because of his illness. Was he simply wandering by, or was he an invited guest? Well, we're not really told, but some people speculate, and it would seem consistent with Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees, that the Pharisees actually invited this man in, knowing or hoping that Jesus would heal him so that they could criticise Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. This sick man was basically a prop in the Pharisees' attempt to trap Jesus. Let's read on. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's pause again here to understand the context and the culture that Jesus is speaking into. The scenario that Jesus uses in this parable is that of a wedding feast. Now, in Jewish culture at that time, wedding feasts were one of, if not the most important, social occasion in Jewish life. And where you sat at that event was not a reflection of how close you were to whoever was getting married, but it was a reflection of your social standing in the broader community. And so the shame and the honour that Jesus is talking about here is more than just a moment of awkwardness or a kind word of compliment. 
Jesus warns us here against exalting ourselves. He warns us against pride. But if you notice, he actually also warns us against judgment. Because if I'm looking around and deciding where my place at the table should be, that requires me to pass judgment on the other guests at the feast, to see how I compare or measure up against them, to determine whether I should place above them. Let's read on, and it's these next few verses that are going to be really key this morning, so let's really focus in on these next few verses, picking up at verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So we've already had a warning against pride and against judgment, and now we get a warning against selfishness. We know that having surplus food, having enough food to share with your friends and your neighbours, was certainly not something that everybody had. And the cultural practice of the time, and indeed throughout much of history, was to have a feast to, uh, to leverage your excess food, to leverage your hospitality, to receive something in return. It may have been a return invite, it may have been leverage in a business deal, it may have been to accrue a favour that somebody owes to you. Grand banquets with multiple courses and fine wine were even used as a demonstration of wealth and opulence to jostle for political power and social standing. And so as counterintuitive as it may sound, many banquets were hosted and food was shared for motives that were ultimately self-serving. So we're warned against pride, judgment and selfishness. Three traits that were abundant in many banquets of the day. And so Jesus' teaching that hospitality should be about service to those who cannot serve you or repay you back is totally revolutionary. But I think that the culture that Jesus was speaking into is actually not too dissimilar to the culture of today. We may be a little bit more subvert rather than overtly jostling for social status or political power within a more defined class structure or with the expectation of a return invite. But think about the saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch. This is a phrase that is telling of the attitude of our society towards hospitality. That there is this warning that intends to protect people from being so foolish to think that somebody might show you hospitality without the expectation of something in return. And so when we look at our practice of hospitality, we need to seriously ask ourselves, when we practice hospitality, are we proud, judgmental or selfish? Do we exercise judgment when we determine who we will or will not invite into our homes? Who is or who is not worthy of our time? Are we proud when people come into our homes and we can show how well off we are, how successful we are in our career, how perfect our kids are, how frictionless our marriage is and what nice food and wine we have? 
Are we selfish when we determine what we will share and with whom and on what terms? How often really do we fall into this same trap of using dining together as a means for establishing our social status or to serve our ego or for some other selfish desire? But Jesus reminds us at the end of this passage here that when we practice hospitality, true hospitality that is other-serving rather than self-serving, it's not that we won't be repaid at all. It's just that it won't be the people we serve who are repaying us. Instead, we will receive a far greater repayment than any return invite, than any social standing or political power. We'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Dan spoke about the Greek words idiotes and agrammatos. And uh, last week, Mickey spoke about the Greek word for compassion. And I'm going to make it a trifecta this week by looking at the Greek word for hospitality. So the Greek word for hospitality will be up on the screen is philozenia. Philozenia. Philo means to love, and xenia means strangers. This component, xenia, might be familiar to some people. If you know the word xenophobia, which means to fear or dislike strangers, philoxenia is the opposite of that. See, hospitality is, at its core and by its very definition, love. It is a concrete, tangible love. In Mark 12, Jesus says, the greatest commandment is first, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, and second, love your neighbour as yourself. In John 13, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. By this people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And then in Matthew 5, Jesus even says, love your enemies. And so we cannot be mistaken about Jesus' command to us to love one another. But sometimes we can allow love to become a bit of an abstract concept. And when it comes to putting love in actions, despite our best intentions, it's not always clear what to do. And maybe there are people in your life that you really want to show love to, but you really don't know how. Like maybe there's somebody you want to love, but they have a totally different worldview to you and you can't even have a five-minute conversation with them without it becoming a full-blown presidential debate. Maybe there's someone in your life that you think are making decisions that are wrong or that are hurting you or other people and you don't know how to love them in their brokenness. Or maybe there's someone in your life who you want to love but that they have been so hurt by the church and made to feel so unwanted, unwelcomed and unloved that not only do they not trust the church, but they actually don't trust you. How can we love these people? Well, what if you were to show them that there is such thing as a free lunch? What if you were to eat and drink with them, to share stories with them, to hear about their worldview, to laugh with them without the expectation of anything in return? What if that simple act of generosity was so surprisingly countercultural that they could draw no other conclusion than that you must love them? 
to show hospitality to those in our lives is a concrete, definitive, visible form of love. Now let's talk about, practically, what it is to show hospitality. Because unfortunately, I think there is in our culture a distortion of what hospitality means. And there is a tendency for us in our practice of hospitality to seek to replicate or mimic the hospitality industry. And this creates a real problem for us in our practice of hospitality. Because you see hotels and cafes and restaurants and bars, their primary purpose is to generate revenue, to generate profit so that hospitality workers can put food on the table, keep the lights on, pay their bills and their mortgage. But to generate revenue, hospitality venues have to compete with each other by providing the most aesthetic, well-decorated venue, the trendiest music, the friendliest staff, the most Instagrammable drinks and celebrity chefs. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of the hospitality industry, but I think that we need to be clear that the end goal of the hospitality industry is different to the end goal of our hospitality, and so the practices should look different. And it's actually when we try to mimic the restaurant experience in our homes that we run into all the roadblocks as to why we can't or shouldn't practice hospitality. Like I can't cook, or my place is too small or too messy, my kids are too noisy and I can't afford nice food and nice wine. But if the hospitality industry is not the standard that we should strive for, then what is? Well, let's take a look at how Jesus and his disciples practiced hospitality. We'll take the Last Supper, for example. What food was served? Was it a lavish banquet with meat and spices, a fattened lamb, milk and honey, butter, fruits and nuts? No. This meal consisted of two stock-standard staple parts of the diet of the day. And even in Luke 24, when we read after Jesus had risen from the dead and he appeared to his disciples, it says they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Broiled fish. I'm not particularly a fan of seafood and this doesn't sound particularly appetising to me, but... It was what the disciples had. Fish was a common food. It was a staple item in the disciples' usual diet. And so even when Jesus had risen from the dead, he didn't demand a great banquet of the finest food. He said to the, to the disciples, what do you have? Hospitality. 
Hospitality is a heart attitude to share what you have, to meet a practical need without the expectation of anything in return. Hospitality, like prayer and like Bible reading, is a spiritual practice that we're all called to make part of our everyday lives. We're not all called to be great chefs or great baristas, but we are all called to be hospitable. So what do you have? You may not be a very good cook. You may not have a home suitable for grand banquets. You may not even have a dining table. But my prayer this morning is that as we rediscover what it means to show hospitality and as Christ stirs in each of us to extend love to strangers, that we would be moved to share what it is that we do have. And for each of us, that will be different. And as with our other spiritual practices, we'll each be at a different stage. And if we want to start simple this week with the spiritual practice of hospitality, maybe if it's not the usual practice of your family to have dinner around a table, you can start there, even just once. Or maybe this week, it's about making the conscious effort to put your phone away during meals. Maybe if it's the culture at your office to have lunch alone at your desk, maybe you offer to take a colleague out for a quick bite, your shout. Maybe you know somebody who's having a tough time, who's struggling to keep their head above water amidst the busyness of life, the rising cost of living, rising interest rates. And maybe you cook them a simple meal and you offer to bring it to their place and share it with them. Or if you really can't cook, you just head over and you pick up a pizza on the way. Maybe you say, look, I can't cook. My house is too small and I just don't have the expendable income to share food. But I can offer my time through coach mentoring and I can share a cup of tea with somebody while offering words of encouragement, support and wisdom. And there are any number of ministries in this church where hospitality is shown to those in our community. See, hospitality does not have to be grand or complex. And in fact, it is in the radical simplicity of sharing a meal with the expectation of nothing in return that we can very simply show love to strangers in a world that is so desperately in need of more love. We've talked about the simplicity of the hospitality that Jesus shared with his disciples. But there is a story in the New Testament in which we do hear Jesus speak of a great feast. The prodigal son. This is a beautiful picture of hospitality. See, the youngest son, he denied his father. He took his inheritance early, essentially treating his father as though he were dead. And by his sin and his rebellion, he made himself a stranger to his father. He estranged himself. And yet when the son returned, 
his father overjoyed in the son's repentance and the restoration of their relationship threw a great banquet for him. And the same story is true for each of us who call Jesus Lord. There was a time in our lives where in our sin and in our rebellion, we chose to estrange ourselves from God. And yet while we were still sinners, we could say, while we were still strangers, in the ultimate act of love, Christ died for us. Church, we must not forget the Father's heart for those who are estranged from him. How deeply the Father rejoices when the lost are restored to him. And the role that we are each called to play in God's mission of healing and restoration. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it instructs, it rebukes, it corrects, it teaches. And I thank you for the beautiful example of hospitality that Jesus showed in his life and that you showed to us, Father, when you loved us despite our estrangement from you. Father, I pray for those in our community, those who join us online, those in this room who come with great need. I pray that through the generosity and love within our community that those needs would be met, be they social needs, spiritual, emotional or physical needs. And Father, I pray for each one of us as we discern your call in each of our lives to practice hospitality and how that might look for each of us. I pray that as we continue to study your word and that as we spend time in your presence and come to know you more, that your heart for love and generosity would increase in each of us. Father, I pray that through all we do, through all the hospitality extend, the meals that we share, the coffees that we drink, that your name would be glorified. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through The Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.